Hello, how are you? Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. I know you have been busy course planning, grading, and with administrative duties, so make sure you're practicing self-care. I want to direct your attention to a CFP that might be of interest to some. There is an upcoming special issue on disability, accessibility, and teaching English in the two-year college, featuring guest editor Adam Hubrick. Teaching English in the two-year college invites proposals for a March 2022-themed special issue dedicated to disability and two-year college English studies. As more disabled students enter post-secondary education, quote, they are accessing two-year colleges and community colleges more so than other types of post-secondary institutions. And that comes from Medeus et al. The special issue, quote, seeks articles that work toward greater accessibility in the two-year college while demanding greater accountability for institutional ableism, end quote. And all that's from the CFP. As for a timeline, submit 500-word proposals by January 30th. Selected authors will submit full articles by June 30th, 2021, for peer review. Feedback will be provided during summer 2021 with final articles due in September. You can email proposals to adamhubrick at gmail.com and tetyc.editor at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, contact Adam Hubrick at adamhubrick88 at gmail.com. On today's episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast, I talked to Deb Diamond Young. So, yeah, I've been digging into these a lot. Um, I'm sorry I can go on about these just all day long, but I've been digging into them a lot to, to see how they are creating this ethos and this space for themselves. Because what was really fascinating is as these women were publishing, they completely changed the cookery book industry in the 1800s. Men start changed the way they wrote Men changed who they went after. Men stole their recipes a lot because, you know, copyright infringement in the 1800s or in the 18th century, not a big thing. But the men in the industry completely changed to fit what the women were doing. Deb Diamond Young teaches first year integrated communication and writing at the University of Northern Iowa and is currently working on a Ph.D., in rhetoric and professional communication at Iowa State University. Her research interests include composition pedagogy, community-engaged writing, and feminist rhetoric. Deb also has a nerdy interest in the pedagogical possibilities of fandom podcasts and an abiding love of really old cookbooks. You can follow her on Twitter at Deb Diamond Young. We were both on Pedagog. How did you, how did Shane find you? How did that? <laughs> um, actually, I think, gosh, it was a while ago. Um, I think something came through on like the next gen um, listserv. 
And so I just shot him an email and was like, hey, if you ever want to talk, I'd love to be on your show. And he was, and he said, okay. <laughs> so that was really how it came from. It's not so much that he found me. It was more that I was like, Hey, I'll, I'll talk to you. Want to talk to me? You found him, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As a podcaster who's tried to pro schedule programming, that's always nice when someone reaches out to you. You know, I'm a huge podcast nerd. I oh, listen yeah. to so many podcasts. And so, um, I just, I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll, I want to be on one. That'd be really fun. <laughs> so, and now you're. wants to have me on their podcast, just hit me up. I'll happily talk to you about whatever. <laughs> and now you're an old pro, right? This is a handful <laughs> now. <laughs> my third one. Yeah, this yeah. is my third podcast that I've recorded. And it, it's really fun. I love doing them. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you have like, um, I, 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 I'm sorry, I need to start that over. I know that you have an affinity for and have kind of worked some scholarship, working on scholarship devoted to cookbooks, right? Does that I, mean that you're also like a chef or a, a, a whiz in the kitchen? <laughs> I love to cook. I really, really love to cook and I really love to bake. Um, and so like since um, COVID hit, you know, I've been, I started a sourdough bread starter like everybody else seemed to have done. And um, I've actually been baking bread every week. And I, um, and yeah, I, I really, I love to cook. I read cookbooks for fun. Um, before COVID hit, you would occasionally find me in my local bookstore sitting on the floor in the cookbook section, just reading them because I find them super entertaining. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I, I love food, basically. So what did you cook last or most recently, I guess, which bread has been most recently or what have you baked recently? Um, well, most recently I've been doing just my standard sourdough that I make every week, but, um, what I'm doing this weekend, my daughter is home for college and my, um, older or my younger daughter is heading into winter break here from high school. And so this weekend we are making macarons, you know, those little French cookies with the filling in between them. Um, we made those for the first time last year and just absolutely loved them. And so that is this weekend's project because it, it's a bit of a project to do those. Yeah, I bet. I bet. That sounds excellent. I'm excited you're getting to do that and spend some time <laughs> with your, your family. Um, let's talk a little bit about you, though. Um, okay. Quite an academic life, for sure. Uh <laughs> both at first glance and digging deeper into the CV, really. Um, the first thing that sticks out is that there's a pretty big gap between your um, bachelor's degree, which you finished in the 90s at Drake University, and your decision to go back to school for a master's degree, which occurred almost two decades later. Uh, <laughs> I had <laughs> – well, I didn't mean to make you laugh. <laughs> That's a very subtle way of saying you're old, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, but you know, now the next thing I feel like my follow-up sentence was going to be like, I appreciate that because I too had, you know, a break between the master's and going back to the PhD, but I would have had to say that it wasn't as long. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so let's talk about. You're you Drake University first. Where is Drake University? It's in Des Moines, Iowa. And okay. so I, I went to Drake um and absolutely loved it. It's a small liberal arts college. Um they have a phenomenal journalism school there. Um and so that's what I actually went to school for is I was a public relations major. Um and 
just absolutely loved it, loved the school, loved the program, um, started working for nonprofit organizations after I graduated, um, had a nice career in PR and marketing, specifically with nonprofits, and then in education. I was the director of PR and marketing for community college um, and was just, you know, having a great career with that. And then I decided um, at some point that I, I always knew I wanted to go back to school. Part of my problem, though, um, as you probably figured out from reading my CV, is that I have a hard time focusing sometimes. <laughs> I like a lot of different things, and I like studying a lot of different things. And so I always knew I wanted to go back to school. I always knew I wanted to get a master's, but I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to get a master's in, um, what I wanted to really do that intense level of, of study with. And so... Um, Basically, what happened was um, I, I got married in the meantime. We had um, a couple of kids, obviously, as I mentioned before. And I, I decided to take a couple of years off when my kids were younger and spend some time with them. And I had that, you know, that privilege to be able to do so. And while I was taking that time off, I was really trying to kind of do some internal searching and figure out what it was that I actually wanted to do. If I was going to invest this sort of time and effort, I really wanted it to be something that I really wanted to do and really loved to do. And so I decided to get my master's in literature um, from the University of Northern Iowa, in part because that's where I am, is in that community with you and I, um, but also because they had a lovely program. And I was excited to get to really dive deep into what is probably my core and true love, which is books, books and food. Those books basically, and the two, books and food can basically sustain me for life. And so I went back to school, I got my master's in that, and then started teaching at UNI as an adjunct instructor. And at that point, I was like, yeah, maybe I'd go and get a PhD at some point. But again, to do a PhD, I've got to really, really focus, really, really focus a lot. Um, and I wasn't entirely certain if I would want to do that. So I took a couple of years in teaching and then decided, you know, actually, I really do want to do that. I want to delve into the research work. I want to dive a little deeper into what I'm doing in teaching composition. Um, and so I decided to apply for the PhD program at Iowa State University. Um, which is about an hour and a half away from where I live, so I could continue teaching at UNI and then also take my classes at ISU. And so until this semester, I've been driving an hour and a half each way to classes twice a week um, in order to do that, which has just been oh, wow. so much, which partially explains why I love podcasts so much. <laughs> Because I spend an awful lot of time in my car. Um, but it's been just a fantastic program and I've really enjoyed it. So I'm doing my comps this semester and then heading into my dissertation next year. Excellent. Concise. I love it, right? <laughs> you walked us all the way through. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna deconstruct us a little bit. Go so for it. one of the things I love about talking to folks in rhetoric is that a lot of us come from small schools, right? Uh, liberal arts backgrounds, um, things like that. And our primary focus is oftentimes literature before we move to retcomp. And that's ob obvious pattern. This is not a revelation, uh, re revolutionary, <laughs> revelationary statement from me. But I want to ask you about your master's degree because I always do. I'm interested in those. So you focused on literature. Tell us a little bit about what you did in your master's degree. Oh, gosh. Um, so 
Again, a bit of a magpie there. This is always going to be a theme with me. Um, I really love British literature. I really love American lit. Um, I My focus for my thesis was actually on the work of Julia Alvarez um, and her use of code switching and Spanish English um, code switching in her work as kind of a way to explore feminist language. Um, so I did a lot of work in feminist literature. Um, and yeah, I guess that kind, of <laughs> that kind of sums that up. But I, I just love all the stuff. So what then prompted you to make the move from studying literature to focusing on ret comp in the PhD? I would guess it has something to do with teaching writing. That has something to do with it, yes. <laughs> um, so I, you know, when I started teaching, I was teaching first year writing, as so many adjuncts do, um, and I, I found that I really loved it. And the other thing that it does is it connects my undergrad and my grad work, right? Because my undergrad was in public relations and professional writing. And so the the PhD program that I'm in is actually a rhetoric and professional communication program. Mm -hmm. And so it allowed me to kind of bring those things together. Um, the course that I teach most frequently at UNI is a course called Cornerstone. It's actually a year-long um, first-year seminar course that combines our um, first year writing class and our oral communication course together. And so it allows us to do this true kind of rhetoric based um, integrated communication programming and, and teaching um, where we can be flipping back and forth between how we're how we're making audience purpose and context on when in writing situation and in a, in a speaking situation and in a large group speaking situation and then an interpersonal speaking situation and group dynamics and all of those fun things and it all get to meld together. And so a rhetoric PhD really made the most sense, both for what I was teaching and kind of the background that I came from. And one of the things I know that I'm excited to talk to you about is an upcoming article that you have. Um, it's in composition studies, right? Yes. Yes, it, actually, it's just about to come out. It's going to be an issue. I believe it's 48.3. Excellent. And what's the title I, or a gist of the title of that work? I, the title of the article is <laughs> Critical Community-Engaged Writing on Student Understanding of Audience. That's Can't exciting. imagine how that wouldn't stay forefront in my mind. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so tell, tell us a little bit about, okay, how did this sure. article come to be? What are your main arguments? Sure. Um, so this is a piece that I co-wrote with a colleague of mine named Rachel Morgan, and it really came out of actually um, a class that I was taking for my PhD. So I had to take a qualitative research course and we had to kind of design a study for it. And I decided to do this study um, as kind of a pilot for what I want to do with my dissertation. Um, and so for anyone who is listening, who is a PhD student, do look at those opportunities. They can actually be publishable someday. Um, so basically what we did is we both teach this, this course that I was talking about, Cornerstone, that, that um, integrated communication course. And so we also both do work with community-engaged pedagogy. And so what we decided to do was um, we each taught one section of our cornerstone class as a community engaged writing section and one section not. Um, and so we had four sections that we were working with, two community engaged, two just standard traditional, you know, course. 
And we both worked with different partners, but both of the partners actually wanted the same thing. So it worked out really beautifully. And what they wanted were narratives of their volunteers and clients and staff um, that they could then use for websites and um, newsletters that sort of just standard promotional sort of material. Um, and so what we did was kind of structured this using Thomas Dean's writing for structure, if you're familiar with community engaged writing structures and Thomas Dean's work. Um, and we had the students spend time with these folks and interview them and talk to them and get to know them and then kind of write their stories with the thought that those could then be used by the organizations that we were partnering with. And throughout this, we had students then write reflections on their writing process. We coded those um, using thematic analysis and then went back and interviewed some of the students to get further information from what they were um, looking at to try to better understand their writing process as they were working through this. And the traditional students were doing the exact same assignment, only they got to um, choose who they wanted to interview. So most of them chose family members or close friends or roommates. It's a very, very standard assignment that you see in a lot of first year writing classes um, that include narrative. They went through the exact same process with the reflection and the interview so that we could try to dive into everyone's kind of thoughts on how they were doing this. And we found three themes out of the, the data that I thought were really fascinating. Um, so the first one that we saw was that the students in the control group, the ones who are not doing community engaged writing, saw their writing as a test right? This supports what Reed and Kroll found. You know, there's nothing too shocking here. These students saw writing as, you know, we've taught you these skills. Now you've got to demonstrate that you've learned them. And so even though we worked through the students in all of these classes with the same exact sort of um, exercises at the beginning of their writing to try to help them think through who would be an authentic audience for this piece, what could you actually use this for. We were trying to really structure this as an authentic writing experience for them. Um, they still reverted to this writing as test mentality. Where the students who were in the community engaged courses saw what we what we described as writing as a product, right? So something that actually has a rhetorical purpose could go out there and do something. Kind of fitting with this idea. We were trying to really t look into their idea of audience specifically, but what we found is that the students couldn't really separate this rhetorical situation, right? When they were thinking about audience, they were also thinking about purpose and context, which is actually really, really lovely to find out. Yeah, I was gonna say, yes, this is complex. <laughs> exactly, they're thinking about this whole concept together. But what was fascinating was that so for the students who were in that writing as test mode, since the audience was the teacher, the purpose was getting a good grade, right? That was what they were doing. One student described their writing process as spitting out what I learned in class, right? That was what writing was to them. Where the community engaged students could actually describe their writing project as something more than just a grade. So using the words of Ellen Cushman, the students saw their writing as a social act that actually got to do something in the world, which they found really exciting. The idea that they were actually doing this for a reason. Um, but the thing, the third one that we saw that I think was actually the most fascinating all of this, what impacts the way that we think about incorporating um, rhetorical situation into the writing process. Because across the board in all of these classes, control and community engaged, we found that the students didn't really think about their rhetorical situation until they were revising. 
So we started them all with these exercises at the beginning because kind of going with the the Lewis Carroll idea from the caterpillar that any road will get you there if you don't know where you're going, right? We're trying to get them thinking where they're trying to go at the beginning. And a few of the community engaged students talked about how that then helped them shape their interview questions, right? So it kind of helped them on their pre-writing side of things. They knew there was a particular type of story they were trying to get to, and thinking about that in advance helped them shape questions that would hopefully lead their interview subject where they wanted to go. But then absolutely every single one of the students dropped the rhetorical situation as an idea and just dumped their information out of their head or out of off of their notes and into some form of document. You know, kind of what Anne Lamont describes as that first, that shitty first draft, right? We're just getting the things out and onto a page, which is fantastic. We love that. That is a good thing. But what happened next then got really fascinating for me. The control students got that first draft done. They dumped that information in there. And then they went back to the assignment sheet or the rubric or they talked to their instructor. And then they made some minor changes to fit what that those you know documents or what that person said. So, again, this fits really well with this idea of writing as a test. If writing is a test, I want to know what the rules are that I'm being tested on. Um, and so they went back to that, like I said, that rubric or that information or that assignment sheet or their instructor themselves to make sure that what they were doing conformed to those rules. Um, and they basically just tweaked. So, you know, students talked about shifting out words that used bigger words to make them show seem like they had a better vocabulary or they checked their commas and they made sure Everything was neat and tidy and professional looking so that they could get all their professionalism points, whatever those might be. Um, but the community engaged students actually revised, as in like the true meaning of revisioning their writing. And so we had students who were talking about going back to their writing and knowing that they wanted to come out with a certain emotional feel and revising what they were doing to try to fit that emotional tone in their writing. Or we had one student who described <laughs> taking what she called word vomit um, and trying to shape that word vomit into something that would be specifically useful for her partner. And she kind of described this internal conversation of, okay, this is for my partner. I need to make sure it's fitting what they need. This is for my partner. I need to make sure this is fitting what they need. This isn't for me. This is for them. And a lot of the students talked about that, you know, put it in that same sort of phrasing as this kind of internal conversation of steering them toward what their partner needed in this particular situation. And again, those drafts actually changed, like really changed in their process, um, in part because they reported having additional motivation. They had this partner that they wanted to please, and this thing was going to have a life outside of their It was going to do something. And so they had the motivation to put the time and the effort into really shaping this work, um, which I thought was really fascinating and really lovely. So how has the work on this article and your development throughout the last couple of years as you've worked on it and your findings now, how has that impacted the way you're going to teach going forward? 
Um, there are several things that that this has had a huge impact on. Um, this is one of the really nice things about being both an adjunct and a PhD student. I can do this in-depth research and really look at things, and then I can use my students as a lab, basically. <laughs> it's really, really nice, a lovely combination there. Um, and it's lovely that I'm in a department that lets me do that. Um, but so there are a couple of things that I've learned that kind of came out of this. One is that... Um, you know, our, our findings really supported some work that just came out from Pinkert and Leon that found that community engaged writing helps support this kind of flexibility of mind in students. And so looking for ways, whether I'm doing community engaged writing or not, that I can help students see the way that writing circulates in the world, how it serves these multiple purposes and try to develop that flexibility of that the community-engaged writing seems to help them do. Um, and so that's been really fantastic. It also has really changed the way I teach revision, obviously, because I know that I've got to keep coming back to this rhetorical situation. It's not something that, you know, I've always thought of as something that we do at the beginning and then they're just going to hold on to. And clearly that isn't true. I need to keep bringing them back to, to rhetorical situation at the times when they're actually using that in their writing, which in our findings was during that revisions um, process. But the third one that I think has the biggest impact is that it's really encouraged me to research and adopt labor-based grading practices to try to help shift those students away from that writing as a test mentality that is rubric focused and assignment sheet focused and into more that process focus that you see from labor-based grading. Um, it doesn't hurt that as I was working on the revision for this article and everything, I was also doing an independent study on um, social justice in writing assessment. And so I was reading a ton of work by Maya Poe and Asao Inoue and a bunch of other folks like that, that was very much in my head as I was working on this assessment. And so that is one huge change that I've made this year that I've just been absolutely thrilled with. So you mentioned labor-based grading. Um, obviously, what you just said, you're an advocate for labor-based grading. My question would be, what would you say to folks who are resistant to labor-based grading or, or maybe even folks who are resistant to service learning and, and, and implementing service learning pedagogy in the writing classroom? How would you get them on board for this, this approach? So with community-engaged learning, um, and that tends to be the newer term that we're using as opposed to service learning, it, they, they still are very much used interchangeably, but there, there has been a real movement to move toward community-engaged learning. I think that one of the biggest advantages that I've found to community-engaged learning is that idea for students to see how they can have a direct impact in the world, right? We see so many students who look at the world around them, they look at the challenges and the struggles that are happening in this world, and very often they, at least first-year students, are feeling rather powerless, are feeling rather like they don't have a way to make a change in things. And community-engaged learning has really helped students, at least my students that I've worked with, see that they can have a real impact in the world. Whether that is something as small as helping a nonprofit organization be able to do more and reach more people because they have the written materials that they need to 
do their jobs better and more effectively without taking their own time so they can focus on other things, whether it is direct service in, a, in an organization, um, it really helps them to see that they can make, make this impact. Um, but beyond that, one of the concerns that folks often have with community-engaged um, pedagogy is that, you know, the focus is on the community engagement as opposed to on the content of the course. Um, I found that to not, not be true, at least in writing courses. If you are carefully selecting the organization that you're partnering with and making sure that you are developing a reciprocal relationship with that partner that serves the needs of both the partner and your classroom, you can create a really lovely thing that both helps your students learn more and better and in this flexible way um, and also serves this great purpose in the world. But that is really important, that you're finding the right partner and that you're really developing that as a reciprocal relationship. That's part of why that the phrasing is turning to community engaged as opposed to service learning. It's not that we are doing service for these students or for these organizations. It's that we are engaging with them and figuring out how we can best fill the needs of both groups and the community at large by working together as opposed to working separately. Um, it does take time. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie about that one. That is a big concern. It takes a lot of time to do community-engaged pedagogy. It really does. Um, but I've found that it is really powerful when, when you can invest that time, and I know not everybody can, but when you can invest that time, it, it really does make a difference, I think. What are contemplative practices? Uh, and <laughs> how do those work into your pedagogy? How do you bring contemplative practices into the classroom? So contemplative work is something that I have been diving into. And basically what I'm trying to do for my dissertation is if you think about a three circle Venn diagram, <laughs> which is community engaged writing and contemplative practice and social justice work and that little circle in the center of those three that's what I'm trying to look at. Um, and so basically what I've been been working with and and trying to really experiment with and, and play with is this idea that is it, really what I'm trying to do is deal with one of the main concerns that people have with community engaged um, pedagogy, which is that if it's not done well, it can actually reinforce stereotypes as opposed to dismantle them, right? So part of the whole idea of engaging with the community is to help students understand the power structures and systems that exist in that community and how they are impacting different people differently, um, really those critical literacy skills that we need in our communities. And if we're not careful in community-engaged pedagogy, what we can actually end up doing is reinforcing that idea that some people are other and some people, you know, fit in this group and some people don't and and really reifying those power structures instead of dismantling them. And so what I've been working with is this idea that we can use contemplative practices to teach those critical literacy skills that are necessary to make sure that community-engaged pedagogy is 
truly doing all that it is hoping to do, that it's kind of living up to its best self, if that makes sense. So part of this is based on Ferrer's idea that, you know, I'll quote him here, reading the world thus proceeds reading the word and writing a new text must be seen as one means of transforming the world, right? So this idea that Ferrer brings forth about the banking model of education and how it doesn't work, that children are empty shells that we are dumping knowledge into and that somehow that then transforms them. And of course that doesn't work. So we get to these critical literacy that we need to teach students the connection between language and power so that they can develop the skills necessary to identify and critique and dismantle oppressive power structures within their community, which again ties in beautifully with community engaged pedagogy if it's done well. So what I'm trying to do is figure out whether or not contemplative practices can help students develop those critical literacy skills, specifically in a community engaged um, setting. So contemplative practices, that was a really long preface to what your actual question was, what on earth are contemplative practices? So they are rooted in every major world religion, indigenous practices, pagan practices, secular practices. You know, when you think about Buddhist meditation, when you think about yoga, if you think about Christian Lectio Divina, African drum circles, tarot readings, all of these are, are different examples of contemplative practice. Um, but really kind of central to all of these ideas is the idea of mindfulness. That's the term that a lot of folks use now. Um, and Paula Matthew describes mindfulness as developing non-judgmental awareness of the present moment while observing one's thoughts and emotions. And so the idea is basically to separate what you're thinking and feeling from judgment of that thinking and feeling and to break that cycle long enough to kind of find some clarity and discernment of the situation. If you can teach students how to make that pause moment and kind of create space to accept thoughts and emotions, it makes it a lot easier to acknowledge their existence, which is super important when you're trying to observe and recognize really challenging and comfortable and embarrassing thoughts and feelings, right? Which are a natural part of engaging with power structures and systems. You know, when you're trying to wrestle with your privilege, whatever that might be, that's really uncomfortable and icky feeling, especially for a lot of students who aren't used to having to do that. And so trying to use these practices to create some space for students to feel what they're feeling and process what they're feeling and then figure out how they can move forward and take action. Um, and so, you know, if you go all the way back in education, all the way back <laughs> into, you know, the third and fourth centuries of the common era, this was really part of the educational system in monastic schools and also in rabbinical schools. They were, that's why they were using practices like Lectio Divina um, to try to slow down the thought process and really dig and explore and imagine what could be in the text and what um, we as a community can find there. Um, a lot of these practices are very much focused on community and looking at how we can work together to figure out and find meaning that individually we may not be able to find necessarily. And so this really is a great opportunity, I think, to help students both figure out um, what, what they're feeling, what they're 
experiencing and then also to make this shift into activism and action. Um, so Holmes, you know, really talks about this. She has a comment um, that I'm going to quote here. Activism and contemplation are not functional op opposites. The genesis of the great justice movements of the 20th century emerged from the consistent contemplative practices of those seeking liberation, right? So this idea that you need this space to be able to figure out and process your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings if you're going to take good action um, and appropriate action and positive action. Um, otherwise, it's just too easy to get mired down in those thoughts and feelings and just shut down and not do that next step and not take what you need to do. So a lot of people think about contemplative stuff and they think, well, it's just folks sitting around and, you know, thinking about thinking about thinking <laughs> as opposed to actually doing anything. And really the idea behind contemplative practice is that it's giving you that space to be able to figure out how you can then do um, and move forward. And so I, I really love this concept of helping students figure out how they can accept feelings and embodied reactions as normal and healthy um, and to recognize and examine those feelings without judgment and then to be able to figure out, okay, now that I've done this, how can I then take that step into action? Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. I'll paraphrase, but you you made them. Uh, you said something a minute ago. You said that you know it's all these it's stepping back for a moment, thinking of all the different pieces coming together to make something more meaningful than than yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And that sounds a heck of a lot like an ingredient, uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna take us round back to cookbooks. Aren't I'm gonna you? take us round back to cookbooks. <laughs> Because we didn't explore them nearly, or your interest in them nearly enough earlier. Um, so I, I don't know how you approach looking at books. Are you taking? Are they a rhetorical artifact? Is are you looking at them as an activity system? I think perhaps 
first we need to start with why is it just your love of food or did you find something one day that set off like you know a light bulb so tell us a little bit about your work with uh, cookbooks and rhetoric okay so um this this actually is a, this kind of of major shift in in what I'm looking at and what I'm exploring is is actually a really nice fit for kind of a look at how I do my work, because I am a little bit all over the place. I like to describe myself as a research magpie. I'm just following whatever's shiny. And um, part of cookbooks is following what's shiny for me, because I not only love food, but I really love old books, like super, super old books. Okay. And so this really began, um, I, I like to watch book auctions, because I find them fascinating to see what exists out there and what's out there. Um, and, oh, gosh, a year or two ago, this tiny little cookbook came up from auction. And it was the first cookbook I had ever seen at auction. Um, and it was called Delights for Ladies to Adorn Their Persons, cl- Tables, Closets, and Distilleries. And it was written by Sir Hugh Pratt, or Platt excuse me, and printed in 1609. And so at the time, I didn't know it, but this is this was one of the earliest commercially printed cookbooks that's still in existence. Right. And it just won my heart. And I just became really fascinated by these early British cookbooks. And so I was in New York and I learned that the New York Public Library in their rare book division has a collection of early modern British cookery books. And so this is the advantage of having university credentials because I was able to go to the archives and the rare book division and go play. And so I spent a couple of days just rooting around in their rare book collection of cookery books. And I didn't really know what I was going to find there. I just wanted to go and play for as long as time and the archivists would let me. And they let me for quite a while. So it was really quite cool. Um, and I love that. I love this um, quote from Glenn and Enoch that they argue that rarely do researchers identify an archive and hope to find a research project in it. But that's exactly what I did. I was like, oh, look, fun thing. I want to look at these things. How can I make this into a project? And so basically what I started to do was look at the author's notes and prefaces written in cookery books in the 18th century by British women. And so by looking at this paratext, what I found was that these female authors used this space, right? So so printing was not inexpensive. So why are you taking this extra space to write a message to your audience, right? Was part of my question. And what I found was that they were using this space to kind of create an ethos for themselves in what they were trying to do which was publish books at a time where the publishing industry was entirely male dominated, like even more so than it currently is. Um, And so trying to figure out how these women were carving out space in a place and a time and a moment where women weren't supposed to take up space and how they were doing it through these paratexts um, was what I was finding because If you look at this moment in early um, modern printing and cookbooks in particular, there were lots of cookery books that were being published at that point. But most of them were written by men and they were writing for professional male chefs. So if you look at the most famous example is Robert May's The Accomplished Cook. 
And he's providing very bare bones directions that are clearly designed for chefs who already know what they're doing, right? That was the purpose of this book. Um, Platt actually was really unusual in that he wrote for women, which was highly unusual in the 16, or in 1609. Um, and after that, you know, female authors really found success in writing for other women. And they changed the 18th century cookery book market by doing this. Um, and so when you look at things, you know, you look at the history of the time as women were trying to shift from being active participants in the farm or in the plant, or, you know, the, 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 um, oh, the land and, and the, the, even upper class women were expected to have some role of managing servants and um, really working in some way. And there was a shift in the 18th century to women trying to take on a role of, of a little bit more leisure um, and having those servants do more of that sort of work in, in running whatever the farm or the, the whatever the property might be. Um, and then just supervising the servants. If you <laughs> pull back to my, my love of literature, if you think about the very famous line in Pride and Prejudice, um, in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, when Mr. Collins says to Mrs. Bennett, you know, which of my cousins do I have to thank for this meal? And she's deeply offended and says, no, we have servants who can do that, right? This is that concept that we don't have to do this sort of work anymore. We also see a rise in female um, literacy. So we see more women being able to read, not just upper class women, but because of the rise of um, schools for less wealthy um, girls are being educated in some way and, and at least getting some basic reading skills in this time period. We're starting to see um, a real pay differential between servants who could cook and servants who couldn't cook. So there was starting to be this market, both for women who want to better train their servants so that they didn't have to deal with it, and for servants who wanted to make more money, basically. Um, and so that was where we were seeing this market come about. And what these women did in their and this paratext was did a couple of things that I thought were really fascinating. So one is that they would very much um, perform modesty in their writing. So they're saying things that are very much trying to um, demonstrate that they know their place and yet they are they know that they're going outside of their place, but they're trying to do it in a way that is appropriate for the time and for themselves. Um, and so they're doing things like, sorry, I'm just trying to find a quote in here that, because um, I don't have all of these memorized off the top of my head. Um, so they'll do things like use communal pronouns. So we now present, or for we find particular regard, right? So they're, they're making this become this very communal situation. Um, they'll set this up as doing a service for these women who are reading it. So um, by demonstrating that they are helping these women help others, which is an appropriate role for them to be taking on. So I've got a, a great quote here from um, a very famous book by Elizabeth Smith, 
where she talks about, um, so physic receipts are very proper for those generous, charitable, and Christian gentlewomen that have a disposition to be served to their poor country neighbors, laboring under any of the afflicted circumstances mentioned, who by the making or by making the medicines and generously contributing as occasions offer may help the poor in their afflictions, gain their goodwill and wishes, entitle themselves to their blessings and prayers, and also have the pleasure of feeling the good they do in their world and have good reason to hope for a reward, though not by way of merit, in the world to come. So, right, so she's performing this very service-based and very decidedly reformation-based service and role of good works for the women who are reading this, which then puts her in this service position as well, which makes her appropriately modest for her time. But the other thing that they do, which is really fascinating to me, is that at the same time that they are performing this modesty, they're also exhibiting this like near P.T. Barnum level of self-promotion. That's really fascinating to see. And so you get this kind of modesty promotion paradox in the cookbooks that I find really fascinating. So Mary Kettleby is another very famous author of this time. And she says in there, you know, to further declare that there has been no spare either of labor or time or money in order to the making of this collection the best and most truly profitable of its kind, and that the great knowledge and long experience of those excellent persons who contributed to its production have abundantly qualified them for setting the last hand to such work. To these, therefore, are due the greatest tribute of praise and highest acknowledgement of gratitude who with a noble charity and universal benevolence have exposed to the world such invaluable secrets as others of a less generous temper would have taken a pride and made almost a merit of concealing, right? So we get this like huge, huge, huge call for um, just this idea that, that this is a, a, great, phenomenal, incredible thing that you are seeing at the same time that we're performing this very, very modest um, description. In fact, Hannah Glass, um, I love her piece. Hannah Glass is, is one of the most famous cookbook authors of the 18th century. Her book was republished just, oh gosh, I don't even know how many times. I think it went into like, <sighs> 12 or 13 editions. I mean, it was it was published for 60 years. So her subtitle for her book is, and I love this, which far exceeds anything of the kind ever yet published. So, I mean, not, not exactly modest there. <laughs> and so you get this super bizarre mix of, of, both modesty and self-promotion that I find really fascinating. So yeah, I've been digging into these a lot. Um, I'm sorry, I can go on about these just all day long, but I've been digging into them a lot to, to see how they are creating this ethos and this space for themselves. Because what was really fascinating is as these women were publishing, they completely changed the cookery book industry in the 1800s. Men start changed the way they wrote Men changed who they went after. Men stole their recipes a lot because, you know, copyright infringement in the 1800s or in the 18th century, not a big thing. But the men in the industry completely changed to fit what the women were doing. And I just find that 
absolutely fascinating for that moment. And I think this is just a really cool rhetorical piece yeah. that we can be looking at. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you're right, like to think of of that flipping, like of 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 traditional roles and assume and 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 the men changing, right? What they've done to fit what the women were doing, like you said, particularly at that time. Like, wow, that that's a that's a unique find, right? And that are <laughs> you went in that archive, you didn't know what you were gonna find, and you knew it, and you found something great. What are yeah. you What are you teaching in uh, this semester, spring 2020? Um, well, so the class that I teach is a year long class. And oh yeah, so- okay. Um, our second semester that we're working with is all about persuasion. And I've decided that in our current world that we live in, um, my focus for the semester needs to be really exploration of multiple viewpoints <laughs> and trying to um, be less wrong is kind of the, the theme that I'm going for for this semester um, that, I, awesome. that I kind of like, because I love this quote from Stacey Abrams. She says, effective leaders must be truth seekers, and that requires a willingness to understand truths other than our own. And so that's really kind of the, the theme that I am going for for this semester, kind of the, um, you know, the Greek concept of theoria of looking with wonder trying to encourage students to um, see as many perspectives as they can manage. Um, I'm also going to have them do specifically a project of um, taking a look at a cultural or scientific or historical myth. So things like people in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat. And oh, yeah. I'm going to have them create podcasts about, okay. you know, really modeled after the, after the podcast you're wrong about. If you've ever heard that podcast, it's a fantastic podcast. Um, but taking what they learn and they research about these things that we collectively have decided to believe for no real reason or for very specific reasons and research both what the actual truth is and also how that myth in some cases was created. So one of the ones that I'm, I'm putting on my list of things to investigate is the idea of like the body mass index. So this is something that is so prevalent in terms of healthcare and this idea that this is telling us what our proper proportion should be in terms of weight and size. And actually it was developed by a eugenicist which seems like an important thing for people to know. <laughs> yes. Was it was it around like in the, did it I have no I have no idea about the the BMI. Was it did, was it developed in the 1940s? The 30s, I believe. The 30s or 40s. Yeah, yeah 30s. Oh, I just completely miffed on I just whiffed on which decade World War II happened. <laughs> 40s. <laughs> Anyway, well, thank you so much. And I hope, listen, you're going to have to keep me updated on the, the podcast that the students make. I do a lot of that stuff, making podcasts, podcast networks. So I'm excited others are doing that, that work. I'm really excited to see what they come up with. I think it's going to be a lot of fun in part because I have both online classes this semester because of COVID and, and what my, my colleague does. Um, Doug Shaw refers to as mask-to-mask classes, where none of us are teaching face-to-face. We're all teaching mask-to-mask. And I'm I'm really interested to see if I can create this as a way to do group projects without physically being in the same room together, which is a challenging thing to try to figure out. But we're all figuring it out because we're all having all of these meetings not in the same room together. So the students can figure it out, too. It's an important skill to have. You're brave. I'll give you that. You're brave. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. It was Thank such a great conversation, and I'm so glad to have met you. 
if we can, if we can ever go out, if we're allowed in the conference spaces. <laughs> that would be great. So hopefully someday we will meet in person. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Deb Diamond Young. It was a real treat to chat with Deb, and I look forward to keeping up with her work in the future. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Season 4, is poised to be the biggest, most fun season yet. In the coming weeks, we're going to be breaking news about plans to establish more ways to highlight the work of graduate students and give back to our scholarly community. And of course, the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming up later this year. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Even though we have a lot going on, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us. We're looking to book guests into Season 5 and even Season 6. You can find out more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast on our website thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com and follow us on Twitter at the Big Red. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.